college students will soon be flooding back onto American campuses. And for those students, the glass is always half full, or so it seems. So there is this perception that drinking heavily is just a part of college life. And you see this a lot in movies and TV shows and, you know, YouTube videos. Anywhere you get messaging about college, you see that college drinking is pervasive. And it's true binge drinking is more likely to happen in college. But it's not quite as bad as Hollywood might have you believe. So it's both a high-risk period and that more people are doing it than other time periods. But at the same time, it's not a typical student where everyone is doing it. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, working to curb the dangers of excessive drinking on campus. Later in the show, how drinking leads to intimate partner violence between young adults. I like to say that intimate partner violence really knows no bounds. It does not discriminate based on gender. It does not discriminate based on sexual orientation. It does not discriminate based on um, race or ethnicity. Anyone can be impacted by partner violence. But first, Universities have been trying to curb dangerous binge drinking for years, and Abby Breitman knows all about it. Abby Breitman is a professor of health psychology at Old Dominion University. She says she's been working on drinking interventions for students since there were CD-ROMs. Now, she and her colleagues are taking advantage of the cell phones in students' hands every day to try to warn them of the dangers of excessive drinking. Abby, you're looking at technology that can reduce the harm of alcohol abuse. What sort of technology are you exploring for college students? Um, That's a great question. We are exploring all kinds of technology that college students use. Um, So we're looking at interactive websites. We're looking at apps and text messages. We're looking at any form of technology, really, that they engage with already and trying to use that to harness getting the message across. to to make better choices. And what are you trying to reach them about? So I look specifically at college student drinking, and this is starting to bleed into other areas because we find that college drinkers may be using other substances as well. So we try to address substance use more broadly. What's really growing right now, which is probably not a surprise because the legalization is changing rapidly, um, but we look at cannabis or marijuana use, um, which is growing pretty quickly in terms of what proportion of students are using it. And so we try to send the messaging to help them make better choices about the substances they're using, maybe using fewer days or um, when they are using alcohol or or cannabis. Um, then we focus on trying to get them to use less of it so that they don't experience as many harms related to it. How big is the problem generally for college campuses? How large is the population of students who drink much too much. That's a great question. So there is this perception that drinking heavily is just a part of college life. And you see this a lot in movies and TV shows and, you know, YouTube videos. Anywhere you get messaging about college, you see that college drinking is pervasive. Um, That said, the number of students that actually do engage in excessive drinking is lower than most people think. But this is one of the highest risk groups. So young adulthood and then college in particular is a time when students do kind of experiment with what is my identity Who am I? What's important to me? And this is a time when more individuals choose to engage in heavy drinking than they would at other times of their life. So it's both a high-risk period in that more people are doing it than other time periods. But at the same time, it's not a typical student where everyone is doing it. And for the most part, do they think, this is a problem, I should stop? That kind of varies from individual to individual. I think a lot of people do enjoy drinking to get drunk. If you talk to them, they say, you know, I'm trying to feel tipsy. I'm trying to get drunk. I'm, I'm trying to get these effects that I desire. Um, but they don't like the harms that go along with it. They don't like hangovers or missing classes or, you know, getting a worse grade because of their drinking. And so we help them, you know, get some of the things that they like out of drinking while trying to avoid some of the consequences that they don't like. Do they tend to reach out to authorities, reach out to 
people they trust at universities to help them with their problems? Um, not as many people as we would like reach out voluntarily. Certain, certainly, some students do. Um, one of the most popular ways, um, based on a study that we conducted recently, for use for universities to offer services is to let students seek them out voluntarily. But we know from research, not just with alcohol, but across a lot of different um, constructs. So looking at anxiety and depression, we know a lot of students experience symptoms that they would like to address, but they're not necessarily comfortable reaching out. A lot more people experience anxiety and depression and excessive drinking than people who reach out for help related to their anxiety or depression or excessive drinking. And so one approach that institutions across the United States are starting to use is to ask all incoming students to go through some sort of programming before classes start. Recently, we found that the majority of colleges and universities ask their students to engage in some sort of program. Um, and the most common way of doing this is through an online program where they can just click a link and interact with a website and get information about um, why they might want to consider cutting back on their drinking and ways that they could go about doing that. Is that effective? It is. It's very effective, in fact, in the short term. Um, so we have seen reductions in overall drinking and harms related to drinking, but these effects tend to erode or ebb away after about two or three months. And so what I've been doing with my team is trying to find ways to help these effects last longer. And we've been using technology to kind of check back in with them. So maybe the first program is fairly comprehensive. It asks a lot of questions of them so it can provide really helpful tailored feedback, but it takes, you know, 20 to 60 minutes to go through this program. And what we're doing is checking in with them a few weeks later and reminding them of some of the things that they found most salient or most helpful from that original program and just sending them a quick little message via email or over text message to remind them of something that, you know, they may have learned recently or changed their beliefs about recently. And are you trying to also see that that's mandatory too? Because the first one, which is bothersome, right? They have to spend up to an hour taking a test in order to enroll. Right. Um, are you trying to make these little booster bits also mandatory? I'm not trying to enact policy of any kind in my lab. Um, right. What we're doing is trying to work with existing systems that universities and colleges have in place. So if they're already requiring students to go through this program, then how can we make it more worth their time? How can we make it more effective and have longer lasting effects if they're going through this anyway? And so we're trying to find something that's automated and really easy for universities to use, but that can make that investment get them better long lasting effects. Do you see a correlation between social media and students drinking more in the sense that students can log into Instagram and see where their peers are hanging out, how the drinks look, how appealing they are? and maybe experience some FOMO? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so we definitely have seen that students use social media a lot. And so it's kind of hard to tease out like the people that use social media versus don't because almost all of them are using some form of social media. But we are doing research in this area. And what we found is that there's definitely a correlation within a single time point. If you look at kind of a snapshot of a student's drinking behaviors and their social media use, you're going to see a correlation where if they're seeing more alcohol on social media, so these could be sponsored ads, it could be influencers showing content, it could be their close friends posting pictures of going to parties where there's alcohol. Um, but when we look at this over time, what we found is that it's not necessarily that their social media feed is inspiring them to drink. It's more the opposite. We see that what happens is um, students who engage in more drinking and heavier drinking, they tend to curate a social media feed that has more alcohol in it. Um, so maybe they're liking posts oh, yeah. or following friends or individuals who have more of this content over time. And some of it could be their own actions and some of it can be the algorithms. We don't really know exactly the mechanisms of how it's happening, but we know that the individuals who are drinking more heavily at the start of a study will later report um, that they have more of this content that they see. What are you finding about how important it is to reach students through digital media? And that must have changed for you 
over the course of your study of all this, the nature of the media and how involved students were with it? Oh, absolutely. Um, It's changing rapidly. So I'm dating myself a little bit to say that when I started this, the program that we used was sent via a CD-ROM that you had to put into your computer. Um, And it wasn't quite as interactive. Um, You know, then we saw progress to websites that weren't necessarily linear in nature, that people could kind of visit different areas and and get access to the content they wanted to see. Um, And then it became even more interactive, asking questions of them and tailoring the feedback that they receive based on their responses. So, you know, why did they want to drink less? Was it because they wanted to wake up and make it to yoga class in the morning? Was it because they wanted to avoid hangovers and they were on a sports team or they wanted to do well in their classes or avoid getting into trouble? Or did they just want to save their money and spend it in other ways instead of on drinking? And so that tailoring was a really unique and exciting piece for a while. But then we, we've we started to move away from just sitting there and interacting with websites for hours. So now we see that students like using apps or like getting text messages. Um, and so the way that we deliver content has been changing over time because the way that students interact with um, the internet or social media or just even interacting with friends is changing over time as well. Now that we're sort of normalizing the post-pandemic years, what is the status of drinking by students on campus? Is it growing, diminishing? It depends on the student. So we have looked at how drinking has changed during the pandemic. And as we're we're moving into this sort of um, endemic time where it's not quite fully over, life isn't back to the way it was, but maybe it's going to be this way for a while. Um, we found that in the beginning stages of the pandemic, some people were turning away from alcohol. They had been drinking, you know, at parties on campus. And during the pandemic, they moved home and they were living with their parents and they just didn't have the same opportunities or get the same social rewards from drinking. Um, But other individuals, you know, they turned to alcohol as they were coping with a really stressful time in their life. Um, You know, they were maybe feeling isolated from their usual social support, um, or they may have been coping with um, major changes in their family, illnesses for themselves or others. And so they may have been turning to alcohol for in those cases to help them cope with what was going on. Um, we've seen that people are starting to move back in terms of their drinking to what it was. Those so- social opportunities have come back. Um, and for others, the time isn't quite as stressful. So we're moving back toward pre-pandemic drinking levels. But, you know, people are a lot more comfortable taking online classes, getting together with their friends digitally. Um, and so it's not exactly like it used to be. When you survey students about how their drinking is going, and how they self-report. Have there been particularly honest answers that have stayed with you or stuck out to you? Sure. Um, One of the surprises when I first got into this area was I thought people would be a little hesitant disclosing how much they drink. I thought there might be a sense of uh, maybe shame knowing that they were engaging in something that was kind of a health-harming behavior. (laughs) And we found that that was just not true. Um, they didn't think of it that way. And sometimes they were almost bragging about how much they had to drink, um, but they viewed it very differently. And so they were, they were definitely comfortable being totally honest about how much they had to drink and why they did it. And, you know, that they blacked out three times that week um, and they were proud of that. Oh my gosh. (laughs) It sounds like your booster idea, this idea of short little touch, short little check-ins digitally with the students will be really rewarding. Have you seen any success or implementation so far? Absolutely. Um, In terms of the numbers, we've seen that sending feedback over email, um, and we try to make it really engaging with colorful graphs and figures and um, things that that stand out to them. But we've seen definitely long-lasting effects where their um, drinking reductions have lasted, you know, through the end of the study nine months later, so possibly longer than that. Um, And in terms of, of feedback directly from participants, we've had people indicate you know, thank you so much. I was so glad to be part of the study. This really opened my eyes. Um, And kind of sharing that perspective has been really rewarding as well. That's really great to hear. I'm sure a lot of others would want to implement this. I sure hope so. 
The research most recently that we've been focusing on has been at one institution where we do our work, but we are expanding to other institutions in the future. And so I'd really like to see it grow and expand and and move across the country if possible. Well, this has been great. Abby Breitman, thank you for talking with me. Thanks for the opportunity. It was fun. Abby Breitman is a professor of health psychology at Old Dominion University. Drinking isn't always a good time. It can bring serious consequences. Megan Brem says drinking on college campuses is intertwined with a lot of the intimate partner violence that happens there. Megan Brem is an assistant professor of psychology at Virginia Tech. So this is a topic that's just really fascinating to me and and really near and dear to my heart. What I would say is that alcohol use and partner violence, especially among young adults, is really intricately intercorrelated. You know, I think we've all come to expect a lot of alcohol use on most college Mm -hmm. campuses, but you don't think of that as correlating with violence between partners on college campuses. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's sort of ingrained in our society. Going to college is sometimes synonymous with heavy drinking and Greek parties and and those sorts of things. But yes, we've seen from our literature and, and multiple different ways, every way that we can really test it ethically, that when college students do get intoxicated, when they drink more than they usually do in particular, they are more likely to perpetrate different types of violence towards their partners. And this can include cyber partner violence, so using technology to kind of abuse your partner. That can include psychological abuse or things like name-calling, threatening your partner verbally, humiliating them or putting them down, Uh, physical abuse, so pushing, slapping, hitting, and sexual abuse, so coercing a partner to do sexual activities that they did not wholeheartedly and enthusiastically consent to. I'm wondering, could you rank those in terms of likelihood or or percentage of incidents? Yeah, absolutely. So we see, when we just ask college students, has this happened to you in the past year, we see about... 25, about a quarter of college students saying that they themselves have perpetrated physical abuse at least once. So, I mean, a quarter of college students have done that to someone that they are dating or in a relationship with. Um, We see much more psychological abuse. We see anywhere from 70 to 80 percent of college students saying that they've they've done things like call their partner names or yelled at them or threatened them or humiliated them. Um, And then sexual partner violence, that's, um, I would say, the least frequently occurring one, although it's much more prevalent on college campuses than in other populations. And we see anywhere from about 7% to sometimes as high as 15 to 18% of college students um, self-reporting that they have perpetrated sexual partner violence. Um, I think it's important to really highlight that these are people self-reporting that they've done this. This isn't a partner saying, hey, my partner did this to me. It's someone saying, I've done this to someone else. Do you think the figure is actually higher than what is self-reported? Yes. So I expect that the rates that we are are seeing from self-report are actually much higher because, as you know, a lot of people don't really want to tell other people when they're doing things that are problematic or, or stigmatized or frowned upon culturally. So the fact that we have this many people saying, yeah, I've, I've done this, I would expect it to actually be much higher. Same can go with drinking. College students are historically not very good historians in reporting their own drinking. Um, oftentimes we see that college students <laughs> underreport how much they're drinking. Now, whether that's intentional or not is, is sort of to be determined because, yeah, you know, you can imagine um, getting so heavily intoxicated that you've kind of lost track of how many drinks you've consumed or how many beer pong cups, you know, you, you've consumed at some point. What is it about excessive alcohol that leads to these kinds of abuse? Mm-hmm. So the I would say the latest theory or the one that's garnered the most support is called alcohol myopia theory. And what this theory um, suggests and the experimental studies that have been conducted to support this theory is that when you're intoxicated, your brain can really only process a limited 
amount of stimuli in your environment. So your brain is really going to kind of have tunnel vision on the most salient things or the things that are capturing your attention the most. If you are intoxicated and you're in a setting where the most salient stimuli is something that's you know, making you angry or stressed or just overall feeling kind of negative, intoxication makes it to where you're going to have tunnel vision on that experience. So if you are having conflict with your partner and, I don't know, any other kind of negative context situation, so you're watching a football game and your team is losing or you just failed a test or you had a fight with your best friend, then when you're intoxicated, you're going to be more likely to perpetrate partner violence in part because you don't have access to all of the different types of ways that you could resolve that conflict in sort of a a helpful way at the time. So you're not thinking, oh, what's this going to be like tomorrow when we're recovering from this conflict? Or could the police be called? Or might this damage my trust in my relationship or my partner's trust in me? You're not thinking of those because you're intoxicated and you have that sort of tunnel vision happening at the time. Is it mostly men abusing women partners when they drink on college campuses? Uh, This is one of my favorite myths to kind of dispel uh, because (laughs) I I think that, you know, media, movies, literature uh, historically has really focused on sort of men as perpetrators and women as victims. And 100%, there are those cases. I know that there are those cases. We know from data and literature that there are, um, unfortunately, thousands of women who are abused each year who need a ton of resources, medical care, mental health treatment, housing, um, food services, all sorts of things. However, that sort of myth or that idea of this sort of this gender difference really ignores a a large percentage of the population that is experiencing partner violence. For instance, we know from our data and national data as well that as many as 80% of men report experiencing some type of partner violence, um, including psychological partner abuse. We also know that there are not just men and women who are in relationships, right? There are men who are in relationships with men. There are women who are in relationships with women. There are people who are non-binary that are in relationships. So I think that there's a lot of problems to thinking about partner violence being a, a women's only problem. I like to say that intimate partner violence really knows no bounds, does not discriminate based on gender. It does not discriminate based on sexual orientation. It does not discriminate based on um, race or ethnicity, anyone can be impacted by partner violence. So um, we see in our studies that men and women both report perpetrating partner violence and they both report being victimized by partner violence. We also see an equal number of men and women reporting perpetrating physical and psychological partner violence. However, I do want to note that we see more women experiencing sexual intimate partner violence than we do men. So typically among college students, this can look like about 15-ish percent of college women reporting experiencing sexual intimate partner violence, whereas uh, much fewer men will report um, experiencing sexual intimate partner violence, sometimes as low as sort of 1% to 3%. When you're talking about the violence, I know we said there was sexual violence, there was cyber-stalking and harassing, there was emotional torture Mm -hmm. and also physical abuse. Mm -hmm. Are you seeing more of one than the other? Is it most, is it, I mean, is it mostly that college students these days all pretty much say, yep, I've been Mm -hmm. cyber-stalked? Well, certainly, I think what we've sort of learned from the data and also colloquially in our conversations with college students is that uh, social media kind of creates this environment where it's almost, it's it's normalized and it's expected that you would kind of by, by the definition of it being social media, monitor and keep tabs on what your friends are doing and your partner falls into that. So of course you can, um, you know, follow your partner's online activities. And there is a normalcy to that. Um, There's even a normalcy involved with sharing your GPS location with a partner that can be really protective and can work for a relationship. 
right? So imagine leaving a party late at night and you want to be able to let your partner know when you've arrived home in a safe way. That might be a way that cyber kind of behaviors can be used in a healthy way in relationships. So long as both partners um, fully and without reservations agree to that kind of sharing of information. However, where I think it kind of starts moving towards the abuse end of the spectrum is when there is pressure from one partner to share things about their online presence that another partner is not so comfortable with. Do you have any ideas or have you come across anything that you found to be a good intervention by universities? Oh gosh, no, (laughs) no. And that's sort of my, um, that's my long-term goal because we've There are many studies that have tried many different things to prevent partner violence on college campuses. I would say that by and large, my general takeaway from those is that they're not super effective. We've not really, um, as a society, figured out, here's the one program that if we could just get all colleges to do this, we could just solve the problem of partner violence on college campuses. It doesn't exist. So I think we're gonna have to get creative in finding ways to address that problem. One thing that Virginia Tech has done that I think is really, really thoughtful is, and this doesn't solve the problem of of partner violence necessarily, but they've started this program um, that targets people's 21st birthdays and they offer alternatives to heavy drinking that sort of incentivizes students to do something other than drink more than they usually do. And so I think when we use those kinds of approaches to just reduce the high-risk drinking, not cutting it out altogether, but just reduce that high-risk drinking a little bit, then we might see um, a reduction in some of the rates of things like sexual assault and partner violence on campuses. I think that that's not enough. We need to do more, certainly, um, to try to intentionally teach these young adults who are living away from home for the first time, who are sometimes getting in their very first relationships, teaching them not just what is an abusive relationship and what are the severe ends of the spectrum, but what does a healthy relationship look like? What does it look like to respectfully communicate with your partner? What does it look like to have arguments and fights that are completely normal in relationships, but do it in a healthy way? Do it in a way that brings your bond closer instead of pushing you further apart or one partner feeling fearful of the other partner. That's a missing piece to the puzzle that I think we're going to need to address amongst this young adult population. Megan Brem, this is wonderful. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Mm-hmm, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Megan Brem is an assistant professor of psychology at Virginia Tech. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. I'm Sarah McConnell. Psychedelic drugs are experiencing a renaissance as researchers are finding they may be useful in treating depression and addiction. For instance, Javier Gonzalez-Maiso and his team are exploring ways a compound found in hallucinogenic mushrooms may help people struggling with dependency on alcohol. Javier Gonzalez-Maiso is a biochemist at Virginia Commonwealth University. Javier, we're in a period that some have called the psychedelic therapy renaissance. What precipitated it? So that's a very good question. There were two groups, one here in the in the U.S., in Baltimore, and another group in London that they sought to get these clinical studies approved in patients with a terminal cancer, but they also have had severe depression, depression that did not respond to any other traditional antidepressant. So they tested a drug that is called the psilocybin. Psilocybin is, uh, is naturally occurring in um, some species of a mushroom, and the data were impressive. So again, patients with depression that did not respond to any traditional antidepressant with a single dose, single administration 
of uh, this active molecule of the hallucinogenic mushrooms, psilocybin, one single administration, together with psychological support, the patients behaved much better. And then your lab is working not on depression, but addiction. The idea that psychedelics may be useful for addiction. Is that promising? It is promising. I can tell you what, what, we, what we have in the lab, most of it with uh, animal models, mice. So it is possible to model addiction. So in mice, if you give them oxycodone, the mice show preference. So they are looking forward another dose. When you give them one single administration of the psychedelic psilocybin, they reduce that preference. So they don't want to get another shot of oxycodone. That is very promising. I read that psychedelics, as you're saying, can help treat alcoholism, that psilocybin can reduce alcohol consumption in alcoholics for many months. Is that already being used in practice? One of the, there's already clinical studies, and the data so far are promising. After one, one single administration of psilocybin, together with the psychological support. So if that's the case, shouldn't we be treating more people who have alcoholism with a single dose of a psychedelic? That is a very good question, and that is why we, I think that we need much more research, and also we need to be careful with these drugs. I mean, these drugs, they are not aspirin or Tylenol. These are psychedelics, and they induce the acute effects that they induce, they induce hallucinations. You cannot give these drugs to people without support. Most, if not all, the clinical studies in the past two, three, four years, there are many, but all of them, they don't take the pill of psilocybin by themselves, the patients. They do it in a clinical environment and with a psychologist and psychiatrist together with them, providing them psychological support. It is not cheap, it is not affordable to have one individual in a single room with two clinicians for two, three, four hours with psychological support. That is not cheap. And not only that, I mean, we cannot forget that the, the, the effects of these drugs are long-lasting. We don't fully understand how these drugs affect the brain so that the clinical, and maybe it's doing something else that we don't know yet, the, 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 let's say the, the, the unwanted effects are so long-lasting. I don't know of almost any other psychoactive drug, that with one single administration, you can induce so long-lasting behavioral effects. So, I mean, I think that we need to be a little bit careful so far, so eventually we could, we could design new drugs that are safer, but without these additional requirements. So is it possible we could treat opioid addiction, which is just rampant throughout the U.S., with hallucinogenic doses? I think we will eventually be able to. More work is needed to understand how these drugs do, do what they do. But I, again, based on the data that my lab has here at BCU, the data are very promising. Something that is also intriguing in mice. The mice, male and female, respond very differently to these drugs, to psilocybin. I think that is an important issue. One of the things you're looking into is whether you need the hallucinogenic portion of these yeah. drugs to achieve the effect, the therapeutic effect. What do you think? That is also one of the big questions that we have. We have many others in the field. Some think that, yes, you do need the trip for the patient to show these clinical effects. And others think that you could design new molecules new medicines that chemically could be similar to, for example, psilocybin, but that does not induce hallucinations, does not induce the trip, and still is able to induce this antidepressant or anti-opioid addiction effects. In mice, the data are promising. We already have some medicines. We are using them in mice, so we cannot officially call them medicines, so they don't induce hallucinations, if we can say that in mice, but still... They induce behaviors, for example, antidepressants. So it's promising. But again, that is in mice. What is exciting you the most in your lab right now? So to me, to show my students or students in my lab how to do science and research, you know, I, I love science. I have, you know, passion for science, for discovering new things. 
And until recently, you know, I was interested in other psychiatric disorders. I was very much interested in schizophrenia. It's another severe disorder. Three, four years ago, a student came to my lab to tell that, that she was very much interested on psychedelics and that she wanted to do the PhD in my lab and that she was interested in modeling opioids in mice. But she was interested you know, in doing that. So you know, in collaboration with, with another lab, in the Department of Pharmacology, also at BCU, which is one of the best departments in terms of um, um, research with uh, opiates and other uh, drugs of abuse. So we are kind of collaborating with them, and the data that we have so far are very, very promising. It's, I, mean, it's, I mean, to me, it's impressive how, how in mice, well, first, how you can model in mice uh, addiction to opiates. These drugs are affecting very basic parts of our brain. They do that also not only in, in us as evolved mammals, but also in, in teeny tiny mice with a teeny tiny brain. So the mice show addiction to opiates, again, to the drugs. And not only that, I mean, when you do this in people, they want to have a trip, they want to have fun, they want to... I mean, in mice, it's, of course, the first time that they are exposed to these drugs with a single, one single administration, they show reduced preference or reduced addiction, if I, if I can use that word, to opiates for a few days or even weeks. To me, that is impressive. We are trying to understand what part or parts of the brain these drugs are affecting and what receptors are kind of catching, detecting these psychedelics so that these drugs can affect our brain so deeply. This is such exciting work. I wish you all the best of luck in the future. Thanks, thanks. Javier Gonzalez Maiso is a biochemist at Virginia Commonwealth University. Addiction is commonly thought of as a mental battle. If people would just decide to sober up, they'd get there eventually. But my next guest knows better. Jasmohan Bujas is a gastroenterologist and a liver specialist at Virginia Commonwealth University. He's found that addiction lives in the gut, not the mind, and with fecal microbiota transplants of healthy gut bacteria, people find themselves reaching less often for the bottle. Jasmohan, I think of addictions, whether to alcohol or drugs, as being linked to our brains, but you believe what's happening in our gut or our microbiome also plays a huge role in these kinds of addictions. How can that be? The gut has more nerves than the spinal cord, and the gut has a very close connection to the brain through the nerves and through the multiple uh, products that are made by what we eat and what the microbes synthesize from it. So what happens with that, the gut can produce or not produce uh, molecules that affect the brain directly or indirectly. So what we have started to explore right now is in alcohol use disorder and some other addictive disorders, how we can actually beneficially make the gut an ally to help or at least curb some of these addictive processes, which overall can potentially lead to better health. Uh, and that is over and above and in addition to the current therapies, either behavioral, mental, or medical that these patients are continuing with. What do you mean by gut? What part of us is our gut? The gut is actually everything. Colloquially, it's everything from the mouth to, you know, the hind parts. But actually, the, what we are describing with this is the intestines, which is the part that comes after the physical stomach, where most of the body's bacteria reside. And those bacteria, in addition to fungi and viruses, basically are a separate organ that only of late has been actually described. So they can actually affect how permeable or how leaky your gut is. They can actually uh, you know, influence how much of a particular food is digested, how much of the particular uh, you know, uh, foreign substance such as alcohol, et cetera, is actually metabolized or you know, broken down. Those are all form of the gut. So the physical part is the intestine, but the actual functional part is way more complicated with both the immune system as well as the microbes that interact with the intestine to make us what we are. I can understand how the gut or the intestines play an important role in processing alcohol in one way or another. But it's so hard for me to imagine the gut as influencing habits and addictions. 
yeah, it's more not just habit itself, but it's more how they actually give influences and give like signals to the brain. So whenever you see you have a fluttery feeling, you have butterflies in your stomach, you have a gut feeling, that is actually very, very true. And the hope is to actually manipulate those feelings in a good way to actually make people break a cycle. So it's not just a continuous thing. It's breaking the cycle by reducing cravings. And like anything else in chronic diseases, such as alcohol or anything else, it takes a process. It takes a little time and it's over and above. So it's, it's not a silver bullet. So what we want to do is to actually realize that uh, changing the gut little by little and in a sustained manner could have uh, an impact on the brain that may be long lasting, but more often than not needs more and more and continuous uh, influences from the uh, whatever uh, medication slash therapy slash transplant we are using for the gut. You recently completed a trial involving the gut that you hope to show we could find another way to help treat alcohol addictions through the gut. Tell me about that trial that you completed and what is now ongoing in your research. Thank you for that. So we did what we called a fecal microbiota transplant, which means an entire community of beneficial bacteria from a healthy individual who's been cleared by the FDA, etc., goes into the gut of a patient who has liver disease, but continues to suffer from alcohol use disorder. So what we did is we gave half the people uh, the fecal transplant, and half the people got a placebo, which is an inactive substance. And what we followed them for was 15 days over, and then for many, many months till six months were done. What we found is patients who've got the, the FMT, which is the fecal microbiota transplant from the healthy donor, actually not only reduced their craving, but this resulted in a long-term reduction in hospitalizations related to liver disease. Then we were curious as to what part of the microbes or what specific microbes actually made this happen. And what we found very interestingly is specific microbes that make this thing called short-chain fatty acids. These short-chain fatty acids are very, very important for us to actually have a very strong gut barrier. They also can affect the brain directly and indirectly, and they are good energy source for the bacteria. And these actually, the bacteria that make this, were much, much higher in the people who stopped drinking or reduced their craving. It is the gut which is the center of all of these experiments. And we are very, very happy to be actually given funding by the National Institutes of Health to extend this procedure, to extend this into a larger group of patients. And currently, we're involved in another trial at VCU Medical Center. And when you talk about fecal transplants, you're not talking about injecting fecal material so much as you have distilled these bacteria from these stools and given it to people in what form? Yes, uh, that's a very important question. These are actually either in enema form, which is in the past, which is from, the, from below. But the current trial that we are doing has these wonderful capsules, and those capsules uh, which we affectionately also call crapsules, <laughs> do not actually right. <laughs> do, not, do not actually you know have any smell, any taste, or anything that would know, and therefore it is very easy for us to make a placebo. This is done with our colleagues in the University of Minnesota, who are also part of this trial. But the clinical site of this trial is at the VCU Medical Center. How is this any different than a probiotic? Uh, the reason it is very different from a probiotic is uh, for two reasons. One is scientifically, probiotics maybe have two, three, four, or five strains of bacteria strung together. Some of them work, some of them don't work. The logistic problem in the United States for probiotics are they are marketed as food supplements and not drugs. So it is not 100% sure that the probiotic that you buy from your pharmacy at great expense will actually have even 1% or 0% or 10% of the actual concentrations that is on the label. Because this is not a drug, it is a food supplement. So there are two reasons why probiotics are a little different, whereas FMT or intestinal microbiota transplant is a whole community of microbiota. It's not just one, two, three, it's millions of strains of different bugs that in healthy people 
have led to a healthy lifestyle, have led to something that is engendering good immune systems and good uh, health in those patients. So the what in those people. So what we want to do is to replicate that by transmitting entire communities rather than one, two, three, four, five, six, eight strains in those in the recipients who get this as part of a trial or as part of a treatment. I'm amazed that you could give people this collection of of good bacteria, let's say, from a good gut, give it to someone with a very damaged gut and body, and really see these striking results, right? It is very remarkable. And every day I'm awed not only at the generosity of our patients and recipients who have agreed to participate in the study, but also the people who donated their material for this and also at the ability of our body to try and continuously heal itself. It's almost as though you're saying you can do this the way we can do other kinds of very effective transplants. Like you can give somebody a kidney transplant, somebody who's really suffering and whose kidney is failing, give them a kidney transplant and very good things happen. So you're not transplanting colons, you're just simply giving people these, this infusion of good microbes from somebody's good colon and body, and good things are resulting. Yes, and that is very, very different than a regular solid organ transplant, like we talk about livers or kidneys, because those come with all their immune hassles, a lot of other problems. This is really important because this can be done relatively easily. The only issues come is you have to select the donor properly so that you don't transmit things that could potentially be bad for the recipient. And that we've done and other people have also done to a great extent. Less than 2% of the people who apply to be uh, IMT donors end up being an IMT donor. So it's very important for us to realize that this is easy to do, relatively easy to tolerate, and can potentially have beneficial effects, but it needs more study that we are currently doing. Of course, it does need more study, but if the way you've described it sounds so beneficial. It sounds like I could have a loved one with alcohol addiction and damaged liver, sclerosis of the liver, who conceivably could very soon stop craving alcohol with such a procedure. But you're saying it hasn't gone through all of its testing yet. So yes, that's why we're currently doing a larger trial sponsored by the NIH at VCU Medical Center, where if people who you think could benefit from this can definitely apply. Um, and the contact information for the person for this trial is Miss Amy Bartels, who's an RN, uh, amy.bartels1 at vcuhealth.org. And phone number is 804 We'll put that on our website. You're very determined to get people for this. You want a <laughs> lot of people in this next trial, right? No, we want to make sure that, you know, the, not only do people hear, but they know that this is not just an exercise in, you know, we're just not talking about it. There is something that they can do about this. Uh, and we have options available right now for this, at least in the area that, you know, uh, that this program goes into. For people who want to sign up for this, how many could you handle? Uh, we have a total number of 80 that we need to enroll for this trial. We currently have enrolled 11. So there's quite a lot of ways to go. If people sign up for this, yeah. what are you hoping the outcome will be for them? The hope is that the outcome will be a long-lasting reduction in craving and subsequent change in alcohol use disorder severity over the next seven months. This trial is for seven months. And we get enough information to actually see what we can actually glean from next stages from these patients to actually see if this can be a viable therapy moving forward. So it stops conceivably, under best case scenario, the damage from increased overconsumption of alcohol, but it doesn't necessarily heal the damaged liver, right? Uh, you would be surprised. We are hoping it would. Because at this stage, uh, these, uh, the investigations are a little bit fluid when it comes to the actually reversal. Clearly, we know when people stop drinking, for whatever reason, their liver disease does get better. People have gone back from the jaws of death to come back to actually complete normalcy, or at least normalcy to the point that they don't need any liver support just because they've stopped drinking and we've given them nutritional supplementation. 
So the hope is in patients with liver disease who continue to drink, this will not only stop the progression, but aid in the regression of liver disease. Why do you have such particular feelings for and care for people who are enduring alcohol addictions? See, alcohol use disorder is something that affects the entire family, the entire psychosocial system that the patients uh, and people who are, uh, who are suffering from it. Not only that, within our medical system, these patients unfortunately form, fall in between several specialties. And therefore, the care of the holistic patient right from top to toe becomes a little challenging when they're split between many specialties. So what we wanted to do in our group is to make sure that we treat everyone right from their brain all the way to the gut and the liver together so that this does not remain an underserved population the way it is right now. It's very exciting. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time, Sarah. Jasmohan Bujas is a gastroenterologist and a liver specialist at Virginia Commonwealth University. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Aviva Casto and Liliana Bukowski are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>